Thank you, Scott, for reading God's Word this morning, and I hope you got your Bible with you, and I hope you got your Bible open, whether you get it on your phone or if you get it out of a real Bible or whatever it is, it's it's still the Word of God, right? So please open it up and uh, tune in this morning as we're going to be looking at a wonderful uh, section in, in the Word of God. Now, there's a story of a um, Scottish missionary, born in Scotland, but he grew up in Nova Scotia, and he left his pulpit where he'd been preaching for seven years, and he went with his wife Charlotte and their family to the Polynesian Islands back in 1846. His name was John Getty. And when he arrived there in these Polynesian islands and he settled on this little island in the New Hebrides, which is just very close to the the coast of Australia, he became very discouraged because for three years, despite his preaching and despite uh, his serving and despite everything that he did, he was met with great resistance on the part of the natives. In fact, he was persecuted. He would go out into the villages and people would curse him and they would throw rocks and they they would throw stones at him. And so three years into his ministry, he became very, very discouraged. But in the fifth year of his missionary ministry there on these islands, things began to change because some of the chieftains gave their heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the entire tenor of the island changed. He left in 1872, or pardon me, he left a little bit earlier in 1872. He died in 1872, and when he died, they put a plaque behind the pulpit where he was accustomed to preaching. And if you have the notes, if you picked them up this morning when you came in, you can read what that plaque says behind the pulpit where he would often stand. In memory of John Getty, born in Scotland in 1815, minister in Prince Edward Island for seven years, missionary sent from Nova Scotia to Antietam for 24 years. When he landed in 1848, it took him 11 months to get there. There were no Christians here. But when he left in 1872, there were no heathen. Now, what an incredible statement about the impact of this missionary and his family. And what I want you to see this morning is we get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, which God just read for us. I want you to notice the incredible impact or influence that these early believers in Thessalonica had on Macedonia and Achaia, the surrounding region. Notice what the Bible tells us in verses 7 and 8 here in these verses of Scripture. You heard them just a moment ago. Paul says, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the Lord's message, I'm reading from the NIV version this morning. Normally I have the ESV version up here with me, but today it's the NIV. The Lord's message rang out. If you have the ESV, it says, It was sent forth, or it sounded out aloud. From you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. They had this incredible impact 
or influence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whenever you see statements like this, it's always good to ask a Bible study question. And a good Bible study question to ask at this point is, why or how? How did they end up having this incredible impact or influence on their region? Now, you remember from last week as we introduced this book, you learned that this city was strategically located. It was located there on the Ignatian Way in the first century A.D., and so it connected the east with the west, and it was a port city, much like New York City. You remember what we said last week? Be like living on I-90 and I-87, where they intersect. It connected the north and the south and the east and the west. It was strategically located, and yet it wasn't just their location that made a difference. It was their lives. It was their faith. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning because I think there are three ingredients that we're going to see that were a part of their life that enabled them to have the effect or the impact that they had for the Lord Jesus Christ. And wouldn't it be wonderful? I don't know if you think it'd be wonderful or not, but I'm going to ask you, wouldn't it be wonderful Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord used First Baptist Church of Westerlo, and we're strategically located. We're we're here on State Route 143. There are a lot of people that drive into this place. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God used this church family in the way that he used the church at Thessalonica in the first century A.D.? Thank you. Now, years ago, when I was at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, I became enamored with a writer and a lecturer who I believe was at Westminster Seminary by the name of E.J. Carnell, Edward J. Carnell, and he had this to say about faith. And he contrasted general faith with vital faith, faith that is just... mm, ho-hum, you know, going through the motions, and faith that is real and alive and vital. And this is what he wrote. Faith is the capacity of belief or trust. This capacity is expressed in two separate, though mutually supporting ways. To believe a thing is general faith, but to trust in a person is vital faith. And then he went on to write these words, and I've never forgotten them. Vital faith is richer than general faith because the act of trusting a person calls for a greater measure of commitment than the act of believing a thing. It's easy to believe in a thing or to commit yourself to a doctrine. It's another thing to trust a person. And so he ended by saying this. When a person assents to a truth or when he believes in an object, he commits part of himself. Now, we've got a lot of people in America today that are committing part of themselves to God. I'm just going to call it the way I see it. There's a lot of people in our country today that are practicing what I would call general faith. It's nothing more than just a belief in a thing. And then he ended by saying, when a person believes or trusts in another person, 
He commits the whole of himself to that person. This is vital faith. And what I want you to see today as we get into these verses is that these early believers were marked by a vital faith. They had given their entire lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that I think we see in this passage of Scripture that describes their faith is they were marked by a personal assurance of their salvation. Notice what Paul writes in verse 4. He says very clearly, for we know. He doesn't say, well, I think that you guys may be Christians. I've been to your church building, and I've looked at you people, and I think you're Christians. Notice what he says. He says, for we know, or we're confident, we're fully persuaded, brothers, that you are loved by God and that he has chosen you. That's what he writes in verse 4. And this little phrase, loved by God, is an interesting phrase. Did you know that these exact words are found no place else in the New Testament? This is the only verse of Scripture where this exact phrase, brothers loved by God, is used in the entire New Testament. Now, we've got some other verses like them. For example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And if you have the notes this morning, we've got it in there for you on page 2. And you can read that verse of Scripture. And this word love by God means to be valued. It means to be loved and for somebody to demonstrate great or generous concern for you. Now, think about this for just a moment. Are you valued by God? Absolutely, yes. If you're in Christ this morning, you are valued by God. In fact, the Bible says it for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but should have everlasting life. This word to be loved by God means to be valued for him to show his generous concern for you. And that's what God did when he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for you. He expressed his love for you. And if you're in Christ this morning, then you're a brother or a sister. You're part of his forever family. And this is a description of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Now, notice a second word in this verse of Scripture. Notice at the end of verse 4 this word, chosen. For we know, brothers, you've been loved by God, He has great concern for you. You're valued by him and that he's chosen you. Now, there are a lot of people that struggle with the doctrine of election, but here it is in verse 4. The Bible very clearly tells us that we have been chosen by God. And so if you're in Christ this morning, if you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can be confident that he has chosen chosen you, and he chose you before time began. This word literally means to select or to choose out from among many or from others. It's the same word used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, which is in your notes. We talked about it just a minute ago, which says, but we ought to always thank God, brothers, loved by the Lord, Because from the very beginning, 2 Thess 2.13 says, from the very beginning or before time, 
God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. God's choosing of us for salvation is motivated by his love, his mercy, and his unending grace. And he loved us enough to send his son to die for us, and he chose us before time began. Now, that's a difficult concept to understand. And there are some people that just, very frankly, they they don't buy that. I mean, God choosing me before time began, but... But this word, this image is repeated seven times in the New Testament in this way. In fact, we've got a statement from John Piper coming up on the screen right now where he talks about the doctrine of election, and this is what he says. Election refers to God's choosing whom to save. It's unconditional. In other words, we don't do anything to earn it. There's no way you can achieve it. There's nothing that, that is meritorious within us that would cause him to choose us. It's unconditional in that there's no condition man must meet before God chooses to save him. Man is dead in his trespasses. Remember that story I shared earlier this morning about the little boy that drowned? We're like a bunch of drowning people in our sin. We can do nothing to save ourselves. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be by the grace of God. God choosing us. Many times we think we chose God, but guess what? Before you made the choice for God, God made his choice of you and for you long ago. And so you can read what John Piper says. And then I love this statement by Michael Horton, this second statement on the screen. Just read along with me. Out of his lovish, pardon me, not lovish, but lavish And I guess it's lovish or loving too. Out of his lavish grace, the father chose out of the fallen race a people from every race to be redeemed through his son and united to his son in the spirit. This determination was made in eternity apart from anything foreseen in the believer. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. God chose us long before we chose him. I love this story told of Dr. Harry Einside. He tells a story of a man who was giving his testimony one night at church. And he was, this man was standing up in front of the congregation like I'm standing up in front of you right now. And he was giving his testimony. And this is how he described himself and how he described God. He said, God loved him. God called him. God saved him. God delivered him. God cleansed him. God healed him. And he gave this testimony uh, uh, to God's glory. And after he's finished, somebody came up, and it'd be like Nate sitting on the front row. It's dangerous to sit on the front row, Nate. That's what you get for sitting on the front row this morning. This guy comes up to Dr. Ironside after he's finished giving this great testimony. He says, you know, I, I liked what you said, but what about your part? I mean, you talked about God's part in your salvation, but... But what about the part that you had in, 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 in getting yourself saved or coming to the Lord Jesus Christ? And the, this guy looked at him and he said, well, yeah, that's right. I forgot my part. You know, my part was I was running away from God and God was running after me. That's our part. We're just a bunch of people that are drowning. 
rebellious sinners that can't save ourselves, but God, in his grace and mercy, chooses us. And he gives us his salvation based on grace. There's nothing we can do to achieve it. Nothing we can do to earn it. He gives it to us. That's what grace is. Now, this should lead to great personal assurance in our lives. Why? For this reason, if salvation is dependent on my choosing God, well, my choice is fickle. (laughs) There are some days that I choose God and other days that, you know, I'm not really walking with God in the way that I should. If, If my salvation is dependent on my works, on what I do, on my achievements, if, if there's something in me that merits that salvation, then I'm on shaky ground because my, my, my human will is feeble. But if it is based on God's rock-solid grace, his choosing me because he loved me and he chose me and he sent Christ to die for me, then I can have great confidence. I can know that I'm in Christ. And Paul and Silas and Timothy, this missionary team, they knew that they were in Christ because their salvation was based on what? God and his grace. And these believers in Thessalonica, I think, had the same degree of assurance. Now, my purpose this morning is not to go on and on about the doctrine of election, but years ago, I ran across this great illustration or story that I think does a wonderful job. And all of our stories and illustrations break down at some place, right? Our analogies are not perfect. But I think this is a great analogy of putting together God's choosing us with our acceptance of him by faith. This man said, the mere preaching of the gospel doesn't save an individual. The gospel message must be activated by election and the calling of God for an individual to be drawn to him. It would be as if one had thrown out a rope to a drowning man. Imagine that you're out there in this, the Lake of Ontario, this story that I shared just before communion, and you're drowning, and you need somebody to save you, and you don't have the ability to swim or save yourself. Then how are you going to get sure? How are you going to save yourself? It's like the throwing of the rope that could not save the man unless someone were there at the other end drawing him into the shore. This is what God has done. By his election, God draws himself, draws to himself the one who has heard the message. We hear the message, we accept it by faith, but the man, and you may grab the rope by faith. You know, somebody just threw me a rope. I think they can get me to shore. I'm going to grab onto it. You, you grab the rope by faith, and you hold on by faith, but who gets the glory? Who, who saves that man? Is, is it the guy that's holding the rope or the person who's pulling him to shore? Well, it's the person who's pulling him to shore, and that's what God has done for us. He's thrown us a rope. He chose us, and he draws us to himself, and so we experience his saving grace. Now, notice, please, not only their personal assurance, but notice the personal 
conviction of these early believers in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 5. This is the the second ingredient to their alive, real, not pretend, but real vital faith. And Paul goes on to say, we know, verse 4, brothers loved by God that he's chosen you because our gospel, this good news that we're talking about this morning, came to you not simply with words. In other words, we weren't just up front on some Sunday morning preaching and mouthing a bunch of words or going through some religious exercise. But this, this gospel, this good news that we're talking about this morning came to you not merely with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Now, notice that little word, our. You see that at the beginning of verse 5? Our gospel came to you. You know, this, this is the only time in the New Testament that the gospel is described in this way. Every place else, it's called the gospel of Christ or the gospel of God because it's the gospel that comes from God, that has its source in God. It's his good news given to us. But here Paul describes it as our gospel. Why? Have you ever wondered why he calls it our gospel? Because this gospel was something they owned, and it owned them. And so they could say, it's our gospel. It's precious. It belongs to us. Our gospel. And it didn't come just in words, but it came in power, and it came with the Holy Spirit, and it came in deep conviction. This word deep conviction, if you've got the NIV version, if you've got the ESV, I think it says full conviction. Some translations may say full assurance. It's the same word used in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, where we read that Abraham was fully persuaded. He was full of, of personal conviction of what God had promised he was able also to perform. Is it a description of a Greek word given to you there on page three, which means to bring in full measure. And it came to stand for full assurance or full confidence, deep conviction in something. Now, I want to camp on that word for just a moment as we describe the Thessalonian Christians and compare them to many people in America this morning. I want to say something about this because, as I said earlier, I think there are a lot of people in our country this morning that know the gospel. They've heard the gospel. If you walk up to them, they can tell you the gospel. They can give you the words of the gospel. But let me ask you, is it their gospel? Has it owned them? And have they owned it? See, there are a lot of people in our country today that, 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 that have attended church that know the words. They know the message, but it hasn't owned them. They haven't given their lives to Christ in a personal way. They don't have this vital faith that I'm trying to describe this morning. And maybe you know some people like that walking around in, in Greenville or, or Westerlo that need to hear the message again. These people were marked by deep conviction, not just superficial opinion or belief. And so it was a life-changing message. And that leads me to three just very 
short application questions I want to ask you this morning. Do you have beliefs or opinions that you hold? Opinions that you hold or convictions that hold you? That's one application question that we can ask ourselves as we read this verse of Scripture. Here's another interesting application question as we read about these believers in their lives and the mark they left. Does the power of God mark our ministry or are we people that are just impressed by human words and programs and activities? Uh, Let me ask it in another way. When guests come through the door of this church, and they sit here in this sanctuary, or when they rub shoulders with us at at a VBS event or whatever it is, and they leave, what do they remember? Do they think, well, that was was kind of a nice group of people. What what do you think, Margaret? I mean, what do you think of people down that corner? Kind of a friendly group of folk, you know. I kind of like to join that club. But the church isn't a club. Or do people leave and think, you know what? There was something different there. It was like, I can't explain it, but but God was there. The power of God was in that place or in the lives of those people. Here's a third question to ask yourself. What's happening in our ministry that can only be explained by the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst? That's an interesting Bible study question, isn't it? I'm thinking about our church here, and I'm thinking about the church that I served for 20 years back in Nebraska. And I, I can ask myself the same question about that church. And about many churches here in America today, what is there about our ministry that if you took the Holy Spirit away, it wouldn't be the same? Or is everything that we're doing explainable by our efforts and our human ingenuity and all our nice curriculum and all of our stuff? You see, we've got so much technology in America today, right? We don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. So what is it about our ministry, our church, that if the Holy Spirit weren't here? You'd say, wow, there's something missing. Or I just can't explain that what's going on there because he is there. Okay, let's wrap this up now. And Notice now not only their personal assurance and their personal conviction, But as we wrap this up this morning, I want you to notice the personal example of these early believers and the mark that they left. Look at verses 6 through 10. I'm going to read it for you again. You became imitators of us in spite of severe suffering or affliction. And incidentally, sometimes God, look at verse 6, Remember, we talked last week about how the Thessalonian Christians were encountering incredible adversity in their lives. Sometimes God allows unwanted things, adversity to come our way so that we will grow closer to him. And so he says, you became imitators of us, mimickers of us, 
and you welcome the message with joy. And you became a model to all of the believers. And the message rang out. And you turned from God, uh, turned from idols to serve the living God. And you're waiting for his son from heaven. Now, let's just talk briefly about this. Notice, first of all, they became imitators or mimickers. One of the delights of my life right now is that I've got my third daughter with us this morning and our son-in-law and my ninth, pardon me, I guess it's my eighth grandchild. Stephanie's getting ready to have our ninth, Lord willing, in November. And Gretchen, our eighth grandchild, is great at mimicking, imitating. And she's in this phase, she's just turned two, and you say something, and then she parrots it back to you. And she says exactly what you say. So be careful what you say, because she's great at, Im- at, at imitating. My son was the same way when he was that age, and he would get out in the front yard, and if I had blue shorts on and a, a red shirt, he had blue shorts on and a red shirt as we mowed the lawn together. Kids do that. These early believers became mimickers, imitators of the gospel message in this missionary team. So what are you modeling, older adults, to the younger kids here in our midst today? And younger kids, I'm going to ask you a question now. Can I have your attention? We're at the end of the sermon. I'm going to ask you a question. Are you following the example Thank you for permission to ask your kids a question. Are you following the example of the older people and the model they're leaving you? Notice the the Thessalonians again. What did they do? They welcomed. Look at that verse. They welcomed. That's like you're inviting somebody into your home. They didn't resist. They welcomed the message. Are you listening? Are you following what others are sharing with you. And then notice they not only were mimickers, but they became models to all believers, verse 7. This word means that they became an exact reproduction of the faith of Paul. They owned it. They didn't just listen to it. I was talking with a local pastor here in the area who was trying to persuade me to take a group of people up to here, Franklin Grand in Albany, And this is your invitation to come along with us now on August 25th. And as we were talking on the phone this last week, he said, I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to be praying for you and the people there at First Baptist Church Westerlo because we need your church in this area. And he went on to talk to me about the testimony of this church and the the imprint, the model that we've been over the, the past many years And he's hoping that it's going to continue, that we'll be that kind of model, the kind of model that these people were to Macedonia and Achaia. And then notice they were messengers. The message rang out or it sounded forth like a trumpet. How many of you have ever been down to visit West Point? We live just a little bit west of, pardon me, north of West Point. Just one person? Oh, a bunch of people. Okay. So you've been on the campus How many of you have heard the army band as it plays at a football game? There's nothing like a military band. I went to Texas A&M University, and there was something about that band, that military band. When the trumpets began to play, your blood was stirred. 
That's this Greek word. The message rang out. It sounded forth like a military band from their lives. And they left their mark. And then look at verses 9 and 10, the marks of their faith. Turning, serving, and waiting. Underline those three words in the last two verses. They turned, they turned from idols. There are a lot of idols in our culture today, aren't there? A lot of idol worshiping. People that think they found God and they haven't really found God, they turned from idols to worship the one true living God. You know what the word turn means? It, it means to repent. Let me illustrate it in this way. I just told you my son-in-law is visiting with us. And I'm going to embarrass him here for a minute. You're never supposed to do this with a guest in church, but please, Luke, just stand up for a minute. I want people to see, see you. Go ahead, stand up. Now you can sit down, now that I've embarrassed you. Now, can you believe it? This guy goes out yesterday, and he's going to visit a friend in Massachusetts. And he goes out of our driveway here at the parsonage, and I turn my shoulder. He's going to get on, uh, is it I-90 that goes to Boston? Is that right, I-90? He's going to go to catch I-90 from here, and yet he's going that direction. And I looked, and I said, isn't he going the wrong way? You ever been there and done that, gone the wrong way? You know what repentance is? Repentance is when you're going the wrong way, you turn. You turn around and you go in the, a different direction, the right direction. These people turned. They turned and they served the living God. They served him because they loved him. And then notice the last word here. They were waiting with great expectation, verse 10, for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who was going to come. They believed he was going to come and rescue them from the coming wrath. Now, I want to spend just a little bit more time here. We're going just a little bit over because it's communion Sunday, not because the sermon's long, okay? Because, but because it's communion Sunday, I want to spend just one more minute here. Did you know that this is the only time in the New Testament where this word to wait, this Greek word is used? It's the only time. It's a compound word. It literally means to wait again. It means you're waiting, 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 and then you wait some more, and you're waiting, 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 and you wait again, and you keep waiting only time this word is used. It means to remain or to wait again, to wait with patience and trust. It describes sustained expectation. They believed that Jesus was coming again. Now, let me ask you, do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again? The second coming, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, is mentioned on an average one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament. If you count up all the verses that talk about Jesus Christ coming again and mix it in with all the other verses in the New Testament, you'd come up with one verse on the second coming, the return of Christ, every 13 verses. That's a pretty important subject, isn't it? He's coming again. 
But the question this morning, if, if you believe it, and you just told me you did, if you really believe it, is it making a difference in your life? And so I want to close with this story. It's a story about Dr. Harry Ironside again. And he was preaching a prophetic message at a church. And there was a man who entered the back of the sanctuary that evening, and he listened to him preaching. And when he finished, he went up to the front afterwards, and he said to the preacher, he said to Dr. Ironside, he said, I'm glad you agree with me. And Dr. Ironside looked at him, and he could tell that he was into prophecy and all the prophetic details. And he said, oh, so you hold to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you? And he said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, let me ask you a question. Does it hold you? And the guy kind of looked at him funny and wondered what he was talking about. And so he asked him again. He said, does it hold you? And he said, well, what do you mean? And he said, this is what I mean. I mean, has it gripped you? Has it made a difference in the way that you're living? And with that, he had to walk out of the sanctuary. You see, every doctrine that we talk about, everything that's taught in the Word of God should make a difference in our lives. It should lead to vital expectation and vital faith, which makes a difference in the way that we're living with the people around us. And so I would ask you this morning, because we're going to talk about the return of our Lord at the end of every chapter as we travel along through this book. And my question is not are you holding it? Do you just believe it? Is it just an opinion? But has it gripped you? Is it holding you this morning? Has it made a difference in your life? Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's so rich. It's so good. There's so much stuff here, and we could spend all afternoon, all afternoon, just talking about one verse of Scripture. But we ask this morning as we leave this place, and we're going to just close today in prayer. And we're going to close this morning with a question. Does it hold us? Does the gospel hold us? Does the truth of our Lord's return hold us? Does the richness of God's word, does it hold us? Or is it just something that we happen to believe? We just kind of believe it, and we go our way, and we go our way. It's a great question, Lord. Help us to be more like the Thessalonian Christians. Lord, use us to make a mark on Westerlo and this surrounding area. For the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Go in God's grace and peace.